Thanks for joining us for Brewing Faith, where we bring the hard questions to the table as we talk about the future of our church. Today, we'll be discussing the shifting dynamics of catechesis in the church and addressing the question of relativism, or not, in church teaching. Later in the show, I'll be interviewing Sister Kathy Doherty, the Congregational Minister of the Sisters of St. Francis of Philadelphia. Grab your coffee or tea, whatever you like to brew, and let's jump in. The year? 1956. In an average classroom, in an average city in America, sat Jane at her desk. Stockinged feet dangling, with the toes of her Mary Janes grazing the floor. Her plaid skirt perfectly pleated, and the collar of her white shirt perfectly starched and pressed. Sister Mary Bernadetta stood, fully habited, in the front of the room, her face peeking through the window of her full veil, facing the sixty impressionable children before her, all looking exactly like little Jane. Who made you, sister said. God made me, recited Jane and her classmates. What else did God make? The children responded, God made all things. Why did God make you and all things? The children harmonized, for his own glory. The year, 1989. In an average church basement, in an average town, on the outskirts of a major city in America, sat Sarah at her desk. Hot pink leggings, oversized white t-shirt, knotted at the hip, matching hot pink scrunchie in her side ponytail. Todd, a 30-something-year-old man, dressed in jeans and a tee, stood before a class of 12 kids, uniquely expressing their individuality in every neon shade one could imagine. Who is God? he asked. God is love, the children chimed. Great, Todd said. Now, let's grab our crayons and make a picture of God. I am that little girl from the 1980s. My mother, Jane, the little girl in the 50s. A contemporary of my mother once shared with me that they were not permitted to use a Bible. If they were so much as caught with one, there would be severe consequences. Why would that be deemed such a terrible deed? Well, as it turns out, the church didn't think the average person was capable of proper interpretation. That was the role of the clergy. My experience, what I will call the God is love upbringing, clearly came as a backlash to the rote theology upbringing of my mother. Her generation, those baby boomers us millennials have a love-hate relationship with, rejected the idea that one could not think for themselves and therefore gave us the opportunity to understand God 
outside of rehearsed answers. This is why we love them. However, this might be one of those pendulum situations where we went too far in the other direction. After all, at 18, I sat in a Bible study listening to others talk about the corporal works of mercy, and all I could say was, God is love. The year, 2019. In the past year, Pope Francis released his apostolic exhortation to young people and the entire people of God, in which he states, All too often, there is a tendency to provide pre-packaged answers and ready-made solutions without allowing their real questions to emerge and facing the challenges they pose. He goes on to say, Yet, once the church sets aside narrow preconceptions and listens carefully to the young, this empathy enriches her, for it allows young people to make their own contribution to the community, helping it to appreciate new sensitivities and to consider new questions. This is why we are here today. Brewing Faith is about surfacing those questions. It is about highlighting the desires, needs, hopes, and dreams of younger generations of Catholics. Too often, our church still sinks back into old habits. And we forget that there are voices begging to be heard. Voices with amazing stories and ideas. Voices that God has inspired to move and shake us. Voices that cry out in the desert. We are a church of gray. Some might be afraid to admit this. Some may think it blasphemous. But the lived reality speaks otherwise. We are gray. Our church actually has a long history of this grayness, as well as a long history of younger voices guiding Mother Church. The year? Sometime in Old Testament history. A young man, a teenager in fact, lived in the time of the Babylonian exile. What's that? Well, the short version, because this is a podcast on faith today and not an exegesis on the Old Testament, is that God was punishing the Jewish people for their worshiping of idols. Jeremiah was called forth by God to basically speak some sense into those in exile. But here's the thing. When God called Jeremiah, did Jeremiah say, Yes, Lord, absolutely, you betcha. No. He was like, uh, but I'm, I'm too young. To which God was like, yeah, I don't care. Today, we know Jeremiah as a prophet of the Old Testament, a man of wisdom, truth, and prayer. Another story. This one from my own past. I spent five years seriously discerning with the Sisters of St. Francis of Philadelphia. During that time, I lived with sisters in community, 
I spent two years in Navishit, growing in the Franciscan tradition, and I made temporary vows, which I renewed a few times before ultimately my discernment led me in a new direction. During the first year of my novitiate, I participated in a program in St. Louis with other people, men and women, entering various religious communities. In the context of our class on issues in contemporary religious life, we discussed the topic of non-canonical communities, that being communities who chose to no longer be under the church. The professor, a perpetually vowed sister and historian, wondered how many of our communities had given this potential a thought. There were Dominicans, Sisters of St. Joseph, School Sisters of Notre Dame, Sisters of Divine Providence, and among them all, four Franciscan communities. Many of my classmates shared that their congregations had at the least brought it up, and for some, even seriously considered going non-canonical. But none of the Franciscans contributed to the conversation. After some time, our professor made note that we were relatively silent and asked for our contribution. None of us were able to say that our communities had even thought about it. When she asked why, we pondered it for a moment and had to say we weren't exactly sure, but we knew it did not feel right. Later that evening, the four Franciscan communities sat around our dining room table and decided to talk a little bit more about why the option of going non-canonical didn't fit us. It was in that conversation that we came to understand a profound truth about being Franciscan, and it all goes back to Francis of Assisi. Francis lived in a time when there were many heresies popping up in the church. Francis never intended to found a movement, but lo and behold, God had other plans. When Francis found that he had followers, he spoke clearly and strongly about how they should live together, how they should go about caring for others and preaching. For Francis, it was vital that this new way was embraced by the church. So much so that he wrote a rule so that their way of life could be officially approved by the church. Francis certainly did not agree with everything the church was doing. He offered countercultural ways to be church. But he knew that relationship and unity were vital. You see, there is a profound importance in remaining within the church even during difficult times. If you leave, you no longer have a voice within. But if you stay, you can challenge for change. Francis challenged the church in many ways, and in many ways, the church is better for it. So, back to that dining room table 
with a handful of Franciscans sitting around discussing inclusion in the church. For us, it was no question. Deep in the blood of Franciscans runs the strength to stay at the table, to continue the conversations even when it's hard, and to keep challenging the church to be more authentic and just. The issues our church faces today are no small things. For the past 20 years, we've dealt with the terrible sex abuse scandal. We continue to see the changing dynamics of the people of our church and wonder about inclusion and growth. I have with me today Sister Kathy Doherty, the Congregational Minister of the Sisters of St. Francis of Philadelphia. Sister Kathy, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate having this opportunity. Yeah, it's really wonderful to have you here today. Thanks. We've started this episode by talking about the temptation to use what Pope Francis calls pre-packaged answers and ready-made solutions when discussing the church among young people. What is your experience of growing up in a post-Vatican II church? I spoke earlier of how my early catechesis shaped me differently than my mother. How would you describe your experience of learning about our church and the church's teachings? Well, I had a bit of both experiences. I started grade school when Vatican II was just beginning, and so in my early days, I really did have to do the memorizations of questions and answers as you described your mom's experience. By middle school and junior high, uh, I was also involved in making collages that God is love, Jesus is my friend, and we did those right. so often and frequently that after a while, you know, it was all we were disgusted with. <laughs> Yet I have to also say that I was exposed to some wonderful teachers who picked up on the themes of the Vatican Council. For example, on ecumenism. In seventh grade, my teacher introduced us to various religions, and we had these wonderful field trips. Once we went to the Greek Orthodox Church, where beautiful icons were explained. Another time, we visited a synagogue, and that was really unusual in our day, you know, yeah, because early on, I wasn't even allowed to go into a Protestant church, but she just was so excited about sharing these various traditions. So we went to a synagogue, and the rabbi brought out the Torah to show us the Torah, and he chanted in Hebrew. And we were so engaged with the whole experience. Then in high school, we were introduced to Catholic social teaching. Great. We studied the Bishop's Peace Pastoral and various uh, issues of justice. We even engaged in social action by demonstrating at a local grocery store for United Farm Workers lettuce. It was really amazing. Now, our parents weren't too thrilled with all that, but we had a great time. So I had several experiences which shaped my love for our tradition. That's so wonderful that you have that mix and you sort of are like a hybrid of my mom's and my experience. I was fortunate. I came at the right time, I guess. Right. And so wonderful to have those people who had that foresight and that futuring look at the church to be able to say these things are important. Yeah. And I was also fortunate. My father had a 
um, went to a Jesuit college and had a theology as a under you know another degree. Right. So he engaged in a very different way with us as well. Yes. We do love our Jesuit brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. They they got that education piece down in us. They did. <laughs> so you are currently the Congregational Minister of the Sisters of St. Francis. Could you explain what that means? Well, I see my role as the Congregational Minister as one of service to the sisters. I do whatever is needed to assist them in living the Franciscan way of life, as well as supporting them in their ministries. Uh, with the other sisters on the leadership team, we also you know, are involved with administration of our sponsored and co-sponsored ministries. In addition, it would also be my responsibility to represent the congregation to the church in various activities, as well as in religious conferences, and if needed, in civic matters. Oh, those sound like all (laughs) all encompassing. So so 50 years ago, we would have called you the Mother Superior? Yeah, I'm glad we're not doing that now. (laughs) Before you were in this present role, you've had a variety of ministries, some of which was working with young people. In your opinion, what are some of the biggest issues facing young people today when it comes to matters of faith? Well, I find that the young are so eager and open to various experiences. They're searching for meaning and a desire to be involved. When I was in campus ministry at the university, The students were the leaders of all of the activities, whether it was liturgical ministries, group retreats, outreach to the poor. And then when they would return home on breaks to their local parishes, they could not find their place there. They did not feel welcomed to any of the roles that they were used to carrying on campus. And so they would return to the campus really discouraged and feeling alienated from their church. It was very sad. Yeah, that very much resonates with me. I'm in my mid-30s, upper end of millennials, and my college experience very much reflected that experience of feeling like I had these leadership roles and went back to a church where it was like, "Eh, we got it, we're good, you can sing choir if you want, we need a canner. Right. Uh, But some of those... More leadership roles were not accessible to you. Yeah, because some of the parishioners had held them for years and continued to hold them on and they weren't opened up right. to, the, to the young. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I think the other thing that young people have grown up with exposure to diversity and that was really lacking in my day. My experience was very provincial. My world was white, Catholic, I had two parents. And we were somewhat sheltered from social ills. Today, people are raised with exposure to so many things, many cultures, traditions, religious traditions, sexual orientations, different family structures, and gender equality is expected. Yeah, very much. Yeah, and I think through all of that, they have learned to accept people for who they are. Mm. And so when our church holds a male clergy only, um, or appears not to welcome LGBT community and same-sex couples, or those who have been married, divorced, and remarried, that is foreign to the lives of people today. And the church is perceived as archaic and irrelevant to their lives. Yeah, I believe that's a great challenge for all people, and especially for the church. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, I say um, our church is gray. 
When we say that, though, we aren't actually implying a relativistic view of right. church teaching. Right. But we do have a history of ongoing conversion and growth. How would you explain ongoing conversion in the context of the Franciscan tradition and how that relates to our church today? Well, Franciscan spirituality emphasizes always turning to the Lord. It's not that we encounter Christ once and we're done. Rather, it's an ongoing relationship. We grow, we change, and the Lord leads us to new insights. We need to continually be discerning God's call for us today. Yeah. As life changes around us, our attitudes and perceptions change. We're introduced to new things. Initially, our congregation served, for example, in healthcare and education. That was it. That's it. When you entered, you were either a nurse or a teacher, mm. for the most part. And as time went on, um, the sisters really, in their prayer and listening to what was going on in the world, realized that the needs of the people of God were changing, and sisters mm. felt called to respond to those needs. They felt called to serve the poor in soup kitchens and shelters. And when AIDS was a health crisis, we opened a home for babies who had AIDS, and our sisters were their caregivers. Today, with the plight of our brothers and sisters on the border, we have sent sisters down to be in El Paso to serve the needs of our immigrant brothers and sisters. That's so great that there's that flexibility and that real, like, true listening and call that, right. that and that's, that's what we believe God calls us to to really be listening and discerning where are we to serve and to answer that to have the courage to say yes okay I'm right. willing to answer this right exactly yeah. and I think one sister's courage inspires another sister oh absolutely and so that's the, the value of that you know the, I, Sarah I also think that the church is called to the same type of conversion and in my experience, I have seen that lived mm. out, where the church has shifted. Um, one example would be the issue of suicide. Mm. You know, years ago, if a Catholic committed suicide, it was considered a serious sin. It was perceived that the person had rejected faith in God completely. So therefore, they were not permitted a funeral mass from a Catholic mm. church, and their families were really devastated. Yeah, I would imagine so. It was, it was really very difficult. Um, in time, the church was open and learned from the social sciences, mm. such as psychology and psychiatry. And people who committed suicide suffered from severe depression, and we learned that. Right. That they weren't necessarily just making a decision to end their life, mm -hmm. but rather the depression that they experienced influenced them. Now, in our Catholic moral teaching, in order for something to be a, truly a sin, a person has to have freedom to choose to do that which is wrong. But the social sciences taught us that the person really was not free. Right. And in our moral theology, we say that, uh, you know, there are impediments to freedom. And in this case, the depression was an impediment to their freedom. And so that they were not truly responsible for the act. And in that way, the church now gives a full Catholic burial mm -hmm. and responds compassionately to the families and the friends of those who have died. So there has been growth and there has been change. 
That's such a great example um, of a time when, yeah, the church has said, maybe this wasn't such a great way Mm -hmm. of looking at this. Um, But recognizing, too, that that's coming out of a place of discernment and understanding and realizing with everything going on in the mental health fields that, yeah, maybe we need to shift a little. Right, and so we can learn. But I think what's um, challenging for us today is that this type of change takes time. Mm, It takes a long time. And we're so used to living in a fast-paced world, and we're accustomed to quick responses. Our church is very careful and deliberate in studying an issue where change in her teaching may be considered. Um, So the other piece is the church is universal. So what we as Americans feel ready for a change, that may not be true in, let's say, the Southern Hemisphere. Seeking truth in a universal church takes time and uh, that can be very frustrating for us Americans because we like yeah. quick change. Yeah, especially in the 21st century with social media and the immediacy of news and you know I often say I, I watch the nightly news occasionally and uh-huh. when the world news comes on I'm like yeah I already saw that on Facebook. <laughs> there's, right. There's nothing new. Yeah, it's so rapid that you can't even keep up sometimes. It is. It mm-hmm. is. I sometimes wonder if the nightly news is going to Become well, archaic. Exactly. Because <laughs> it's too late. Um, but also interesting that in a time when maybe that's not the way we should be going, we should slow down, we should be more reflective, and and it's kind of nice to be a part of a church that takes that so seriously. Exactly. Let's not exactly. rush into some decision. Mm-hmm. Let's really reflect on it. And like you said, the universality of the church. Right, that right. We come from so many different perspectives Mm -hmm. as a church. It's a global community. And it takes time to hear those perspectives out and and realize that maybe in our North American mentality, we might not always have it right, too. Exactly. And so to take that time to say, well, is this where we're called to be? So that's a great perspective. Um, I shared a sliver of insight earlier into Francis of Assisi, How do you see Franciscans engaging in these topics today? Was Francis's world gray? And how did he engage in that in the church? Yeah, well, as Franciscans, we continue to pray and discern together what the gospel requires of us as we live each day. We know our God to be generous, loving, compassionate, merciful. And that we know each person is created in God's love and image. And all of us are called to respect each individual and all of creation. And in Francis's time, when the church was caught up with issues of power and wealth, Francis chose simplicity and poverty. Yeah. He took a, diff- a different point, a different way. And when people who suffered from the disease of leprosy were ostracized and pushed out of the uh, to the margins of the community. Francis chose to go and live among them and to try to care for them. Uh, Francis lived as he believed Christ would live, and we're called to do the same. This may at times put us at odds with the social order and the church, but we need to be rooted in the gospel and to engage respectfully with the church and with our society always. And it's about living it. It's about... Listening to the gospel and living it as you have known and come to feel that you're being led by God. Yeah, absolutely. And 
I think that's why I love the Franciscan tradition so much myself. Wow. It is that that piece of being a part of the church, but also holding the church accountable mm-hmm. and saying that these are the needs of the people. Right. And right. not getting so caught up in the hierarchy and the, the rules and regulations, but saying, where do we need to be open? And without those voices, mm-hmm. I think the church is dead. And I think that's why it's so important to be part of a faith community. Yes. It's a community that, you know, I can be, have my own ideas and try to discern God's will in my life. But to do that in the context of community gives it even a greater strength um, because you're you're sharing that experience with so many others. Yeah, in the Franciscan tradition, they talk about um, discernment not being in the desert. Right. <laughs> we typically right. think of right. Jesus going out and discerning for 40 days. And, but we're in um, the marketplace. <laughs> we're in the marketplace, and I've heard we're, we're on the mountaintop. Right. You know, the transfiguration right. in community, in right. conversation, and that right. that that. The experience leads us into the discernment, which then brings us to action. Absolutely. So thank you so much for your time with us today. Is there anything else you want to add? Yeah, but thank you. And I think this is great because we so want that other people learn more about the Franciscan tradition that we love so much. Yeah. So thank you so much for today. And um, I look forward to future conversations. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for our inaugural episode of Brewing Faith. We invite our listeners to call our Brewing Faith hotline to leave your questions to be aired on our show. 610-558-6797 or email at brewingfaith at osfphila.org. Each episode, we will share stories, interview people on their faith stories, and answer those questions. We look forward to sharing a cup of your favorite brew next month when we sit down with two women working on Red Hill Farm, the farm of the Sisters of St. Francis. Remember, the future is bright if we bring the light.